Welcome to the Blue Collar Scholar. I have worked manual labor jobs for my entire life. I have worked as a pastor, and I am taking my first steps into the exciting world of academics. In this podcast, we will dive into history, theology, current events, and perhaps even other topics along the way. In this series, we will explore the American Civil War, the foundational event in the United States' rise from a brand new nation to full-fledged world power. The Blue Collar Scholar is written, recorded, and edited by Will Wrights. Music by Coma Media from Pixabay. The purpose of this podcast is to educate. Use and distribution of this podcast can only be done by the express written permission of the content creator of this podcast. Thank you for joining us. Today we're going to talk about the Battle of Gettysburg and the Battle of Vicksburg. Full disclosure, I know more about the Battle of Gettysburg than I do about the Battle of Vicksburg. So I did some studies this week. I hope, hopefully I caught up a little bit, but you might notice I have a little bit more mastery of uh, battle maps and stuff on Gettysburg. Uh, I've told you before that I'm not really a maps guy. Gettysburg is the one battle I've looked at maps enough that I actually kind of get it. I, I understand what they're referring to, the, this line and that line and their all that stuff. So hopefully we'll, uh, we'll uh, dig right in. All right. What is the Battle of Gettysburg? Well, it is the only battle to take place, or the only major battle, I should say. I, I don't want to stick my foot in my mouth. There might have been a little battle in Ohio that I've never heard of. But it's the only major battle that takes place not only in a Union state, but in a Union state that is not a, considered a border state. Because Pennsylvania, even though it's pretty close to Virginia, you could, you could drive from the, nor- the absolute northern part of Virginia to Pennsylvania in, what, like an hour? It's pretty close, but Pennsylvania was a free state, and it was solidly north, and it was it was kind of the heart of the Union during the Civil War. It was it wasn't considered a border state, so it's it's the only major battle to take place in that kind of state. The, in fact, battles in Union states period are kind of rare. You've got Antietam in Maryland, and you've got some of those battles that take place in Kentucky. You do have quite a few that take place in Missouri, but. With the exception of Wilson's Creek, most of the battles that take place in Missouri just aren't that big. So this is the biggie. Uh, July 1st through 3rd on 1863. This is the direct result of Lee's decisive Chancellorsville victories. Let's look back. All right, Chancellorsville. Chancellorsville was considered Lee's best battle. He he, he had total mastery of the uh, field. He did very well. The only real bad thing about Chancellorsville was that the South lost uh, Stonewall Jackson in an unfortunate friendly fire scenario between the second and third day, or it might have been between the first and second day, but I think it was between the second and third day of battle uh, at Chancellorsville. And, of course, he got shot, and then a few days later he died uh, of his wounds. Other than that, Chancellorsville was a crushing success for the Confederate and... Lee decided that he wanted to capitalize on this while he could. Some of the, the I, I just started a new book on the uh, on the Civil War, and, and one of the chapters talked a lot about how Lee really did understand that he 
was leading a nation whose military force was much smaller than the one he was he was facing, and that while a lot of people expected the South's key to victory to be what the American patriots' key to victory was against Britain, which was string this thing out as long as possible and make Britain sick of fighting it. Lee understood that the the situations were not the same. Britain was across the ocean. The 13 colonies was an important part of the British Empire, but it was part of the British Empire. It wasn't part of Britain. And in the Civil War, the attitudes were, were a lot different. Lincoln and most of the Northerners considered the South to be their country. And they considered the North to be the Southerners' country, too. It was all one country. They weren't about to just uh, cut and run or, to, or, or, or allow the South to, uh, to declare independence and in, in, in the Union. And so the North was, Lee realized the North was very unlikely to ever just, just get sick of fighting and, and, and go home, like, like the, honestly, like the British did. If the British really wanted to sink a whole bunch of treasure into, into it, they probably could have in the 18, in 1780s just gotten a much bigger army and come and crushed us. They, they honestly, they probably could have done it, but it would have been super expensive. And then they would have had to occupy. And as, as America has found out, in many cases where, where we've won, occupation sucks. <laughs> yeah. Occupation is expensive, and it gives an opportunity for uh, guerrilla war to just decimate the, the occupiers. And, it, and, and the country that does the occupying, at least the military forces of the country that's doing the occupying, almost always ends up hating it. So Lee knew that, that the, the best chance for the South to win was to crush the North in battle as soon as possible, as early as possible, because the longer the war drag, drag out, the more the resources and numbers would come to bear in, in the decision. And that if he could get a crushing defeat, especially in the North, uh, Gettysburg is, is on the road, railroad speaking, to New York City's just just a few hours away. Philadelphia is even closer. Uh, turn the other way, you've got Allentown, Harrisburg, Pitt, Pittsburgh, Cleveland. They're all within striking distance of Gettysburg. If he could if he could crush the Army of the Potomac in Gettysburg and have command of the field, and then he could do his choosing of where he would go next. Uh, even, if he, even at that point, if he absolutely crushed Gettysburg, if he felt like he had to retreat for tactical reasons, at least it would be it would be a tactical retreat, or it would be a, 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 a retreat to you know to make sure you have enough resources and not string yourself out. It wouldn't be a retreat and defeat. So he wanted to ch- capitalize on Chancellorsville and, and and turn it into instead of just a a big victory in Virginia, he wanted to turn it into a big victory in the North. So he decides to go up the Shenandoah Valley. The Shenandoah Valley. This shows the Virginia part of the Shenandoah Valley, but pretty much the whole south east part of of, uh, of well everything that looks bumpy here all, all of these all of these mountains come down into the Shenandoah Valley so the whole side of West Virginia and then this uh, uh, part of, of, of Maryland directly northwest of, of DC and then even the southern part right leading up to Gettysburg all that would be considered part of the Shenandoah Valley too or at least an extended I mean, an extended definition of the Shenandoah Valley. And basically, if, if, if uh, Lee could have command of the field on the other end of the valley, the whole valley could be his. So what, what are some opportunities that open up in that case? Well, 
a reconquest of West Virginia. If I remember my timeline right now, West Virginia is a state or it's just about to become one. If I'm not mistaken, I think they become a state in late 1862. I'd have to double check on that. So reconquest of West Virginia. And, and then, like I said earlier, uh, from Gettysburg, he would have his choice of places to go next. New York, Philadelphia, uh, Harrisburg, Pittsburgh, uh, Washington, D.C. would be uh, within striking distance, if, especially if he crushes the Army of the Potomac. Then Lincoln would have to rush soldiers to protect D.C. from that point. So he uh, goes through the uh, Shenandoah Valley. Now, there's a little disagreement about whether he really wanted Gettysburg or not, or whether maybe his goal was, was actually Harrisburg or, or Philadelphia. At one point, between Chancellorsville and Gettysburg, Lee gives, and we'll get to it earlier, as at some point in my notes I mentioned this, so we'll come back to it. He gives Jeb Stewart the right to go off and do some uh, foraging and, and, and uh, exploratory kind of feints against the Union Army to see find some weaknesses. And Stewart disappears. Stewart doesn't show back up until the late afternoon of the second day of Battle of Gettysburg. So... The cavalry basically functioned similar role in World War One as the balloon corps, where you you that was your, your that's where you got actually balloon corps actually was was in the Civil War too it just wasn't used very much but uh, balloon corps and then and then uh, airplanes as they were starting to be used in World War One at first the uh, airplane wasn't used for bombing or or dogfights it was used for intelligence and reconnaissance. That's a similar role that the cavalry plays because the cavalry is so much more mobile and can cover so much more ground. The whole job of the cavalry, or a major part of the job of the cavalry, was to provide intelligence to the commanding officers so that they can better use their, their troops. So Lee starts marching nor up the Shenandoah Valley into the north, and he, as far as he knows, he is completely left behind the Army of the Potomac. The Army of the Potomac, as far as Lee knows, is still twiddling their thumbs down in, in Virginia. And he's, he's half right. I'm getting ahead of my notes, so I will end up covering my... Uh, I'll end up, unfortunately, repeating some of this stuff, but Hooker, Chancellorsville, if I remember right, here, somewhere in this area. As Lee starts to go up the, the Shenandoah Valley, Hooker knows kind of what he's doing, but Hooker doesn't chase Lee. He's not trying to stay on Lee's tail. He... He wants to cut a, a swath like here for the very express purpose of being between Lee and Washington, D.C. at any given time. So Hooker wasn't a great general, but this is actually probably one of his better decisions because if he follows Lee, let's just let's just imagine a scenario where Lee still has Jeb Stewart's intelligence information. And, and so, so Lee goes up the Shenandoah Valley, and if Hooker follows him directly... It could just be like a Benny Benny Hill sketch where they're and then so Hooker's all the way out here trying to follow Lee while Lee's already gone all the way up the valley and is attacking Washington D.C. So probably a smart decision on Hooker's part was to take a different path to to always be between Lee and Washington D.C. wherever Lee is going, and of course. Nobody knows he's going to Pennsylvania at this point. As far as uh, Hooker knows, he might he might be taking another swipe at Maryland. He came within inches of winning Antietam, and if if he could take another swing at, at, at an invasion of Maryland and, and make that successful, that would put a you know that would put a lot more danger on Washington D.C. than a victory in in southern Pennsylvania would. Lee's goals, as he stated after the war, 
he uh, he wanted to. Uh, I mean, he wanted to win the battle, of course, but he wanted to crush Lincoln and the Republicans in in the ballot box. And of course, as a not as far as he was concerned, not an, uh, a U.S. citizen, uh, he wouldn't run or anything. But what he wanted to do was he wanted to discourage the North, which would encourage peace Democrats and strengthen them. And then hope, hopefully in 1864, that would put McClellan in the White House and put Democrats back in charge of Congress. That's a big goal of what he was wanting to do with his northern campaign. He also wanted to disrupt Hooker's potential summer campaign. And of course, we know now that Hooker will only be in charge for the first month of summer. Actually, since summer begins on June 21st, only the first week of summer. Uh, and then he's re, re, uh, replaced by Meade. But either way, Hooker or Meade, if Lee goes on the offensive, that will disrupt whatever summer campaign that the commander of the Army of the Potomac has in mind. And in fact, Lee, if, if that's the case, Lee is ab- absolutely true. For this whole summer of 1863, the Army of the Potomac makes no major offensive moves because they're busy chasing Lee to Gettysburg and, and, of course, winning the battle. But they're, they're Lee's choosing where this battle's going to be and where this campaign's going to be. He also hoped, I mean, everybody knew what was going on in the West, in Vicksburg. So he hoped that if there was a crushing victory for the South against the North in in, uh, Gettysburg, Harrisburg, or Philadelphia, somewhere in that range, uh, he was hoping one of the things it might do is it might force Lincoln to transfer a bunch of the Western armies east to protect Washington, D.C., and et cetera, and that would release some of the pressure on Vicksburg and, and, and perhaps even give the South an opportunity to start regaining some territory along the Mississippi River. He also, by this point in the war, the South is actually starting to feel the effects of not having as, uh, enough, um, uh, well, the, the, the scarcity problems that the South really faces in 1864 and 1865, where you have riots in the streets and, and uh, citizens are, are having bread riots and stuff. So at this point in the war, the South is starting to feel this with rations. Soldiers aren't getting quite as much food and clothing as they had uh, towards the earlier part of the war. And Lee, of course, in command, knows that that they're they're having a harder time getting any shipments from the South for various reasons. Either the uh, northern armies are cutting off uh, access routes, which is that's a big part of Vicksburg I hadn't even thought of until this week when I was doing some studies, is that as long as, as the uh, river, as long as the South had control of, uh, of Vicksburg, as long as they had control of those two forts, then not only would that give uh, the South some river traffic, but what it really did was it would allow a place for the South to cross the Mississippi River and for trains to cross on, on, on train bridges to bring cattle and other supplies from Texas and Arkansas to the east to feed the massive uh, Confederate army and, of course, the people in the south. You cut off Vicksburg, Texas, for all intents and purposes, is, is something else. It's, there will no longer be any serious communication between Texas, or the trans, I'll say the Trans-Mississippi, so the western half of Louisiana, as well as Arkansas and Texas, and, uh, and any Confederates who happen to still be in New Mexico or Indian Territory. They would be cut off from the rest of the Confederates. So they're already starting to feel the pinch of, 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 of running short on supplies. So Lee decides, well, if we're going to have to live off the 
land. Let's go do it up, up north. Why steal from the Virginians? Which is also, he wanted to give his home state a little bit of break from war. Almost every battle except Antietam, and I, yeah, I think that's it at this point in the war, every battle in the east has been in Virginia. There's been some minor skirmishes, in, especially along the coasts around naval ports and stuff, uh, in North Carolina, South Carolina, Florida, and that, those areas. But as far as one army lining up against another army and going at it, it's all been in Virginia. Uh, uh, and then, like I said, and Antietam. But, but besides Antietam, it's all been in Virginia. So he wants to give the countryside of Virginia just a, a break from war for a while. So those are his goals. After the war, he kind of made it out to those were his only goals. And if that's true, pretty successful. Uh, except for the, he didn't win the battle, so there was it didn't hurt Lincoln or the Republicans in the ballot box. In fact, the fall of Atlanta will, and 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 the months leading up to the fall of Atlanta, Sherman's inability to take Atlanta had more to do with the 1864 election than this did. This is a, over a year before the 1864 election. So, even though Lee didn't get his way with that goal. Uh, it didn't necessarily hurt it. And the other goals, at least as he stated after the war, were, were successes. He disrupted the Army of the Potomac's offensives for that summer. He, well, I guess he is a big failure for the Vicksburg because a victory didn't force anybody from the West. But they did live off the, the northern citizens for a while, and they did take the war away from, from Virginia. So it was about a half success from those, for those goals. So we're not going to cover all these little skirmishes on the way north. Okay, so following Jackson's death, Stonewall Jackson's death, uh, Lee reorganized the Stonewall Brigade. Uh, and actually he had, he had two, I'm not sure if I'm using the terms right, but two, two major brigades, one under uh, Longstreet and one under Stonewall Jackson, and he decided to take this opportunity to have three Instead, so, so uh, going into Gettysburg, you have Longstreet as one brigade, Richard S. Ewell leading another, and then A.P. Hill leading yet another. Ewell and Hill had been, oh no, I'm not using the term brigade right, because brigadier general leads a brigade. So what would be above a brigade? It would be a division. So the South had two divisions, now they have three. Basically, he divides the Stonewall Brigade, which is just a nickname at that point, it's actually a division. He divides it in two. So you have, because Ewell and Hill had been brigadier generals under Stonewall Jackson, now they both become major generals leading their own division. So let's look at a, at a couple of the battles along the way. First, uh, there is Brandy Station at Culpeper. That takes place, is a, um, does it say? Yeah, June 9th. I didn't put it in my notes. This is really only notable. It's an inconclusive battle, but it's actually the largest cavalry, engage, cavalry engagement of the Civil War. There are a few infantry soldiers involved, but mostly this is one cavalry versus another. They begin, the, the Confederates begin crossing the Potomac on June 15th. And like I said earlier, Hooker follows, but he follows in a way that always keeps himself between Lee and Washington, D.C. at all times. And un the Union finally started crossing the Potomac on June 25th through 27th, so about a week and a half to two weeks later. So Lee is a, a, a little bit ahead at this point. He's, he's, 
he's got a head start towards Pennsylvania. Of course, we all know now know where everything went down, but they don't know yet. Nobody in the North yet knows where Lee's going. In fact, Lee doesn't know where he's going. Lee's goal, once again, I'm sure I'm going to get to this in the notes, but see this word here, South Mountain? If I understand what I've read this week right, South Mountain is really not one peak, but a ridge, a, a, a high ground that extends from the north of Gettysburg down into Pennsylvania and into West Virginia. It is so right here, maybe not West Virginia then, because I can kind of see it here. So South Mountain is an area that is uh, it's like a, a long ridge that's to the north and, and west of Gettysburg. And early indications are that Lee was wanting to set up here at South Mountain and then force the Union to face him on that high ground. South Mountain would have been much higher than any of the high ground the Union gained south of Gettysburg. So even Lee doesn't exactly know where this battle is going to go down. He's got a slightly different vision than what actually happens, obviously because he loses. Now, I said this before, but I'm going to follow my notes so I don't get lost. He wanted to live off the land, but he wanted to avoid being seen as absolute villains, especially in Maryland. But even in, in Pennsylvania, he, he didn't want for the Pennsylvanians to think of the Confederates as just evil, like orcs from Lord of the Rings. So he tells his, his uh, soldiers that they have to pay for what they take. The problem is that's still basically stealing because you're paying Northerners with Confederate money, which is even if you're paying for Confederate money in, in the South, it's still not. Inflation at this point for Confederate money has outpaced inflation for U.S. money by hundreds of times. And not only that, but who in the North is going to accept Confederate money? So they're basically stealing. And the Lee's attempt to not seem like villains really didn't work in this respect. As they went along North, and then even more so as they retreated back South, uh, the Confederate Army kidnapped around a thousand Northern blacks and took them South and sold them into slavery. As best I can tell, a majority and maybe a big majority of that thousand were not escaped slaves. They were people who had been either freedmen their whole life or had, whose, whose freedom had been legally purchased at some point. And so they were kidnapped by the uh, Southern Army and then dragged south against their will. Which, I mean, compared to all of the evils of slavery for the last 400 or you know for the previous 300 years before that I mean I'm not sure it's much worse but when you're trying to act like you are not the villain of this story that's one of the ways to kind of prove you are here the steward goes up there and then he goes he goes by Washington and clear up to Harrisonburg and then and then he finally ends up <laughs> when the battle's going on at Gettysburg he finally shows up well and and, and Stewart's not the only one. Jubal Early, he, he ends up getting as far away as, as Wrightsville, and he has, to, he has to come back. And apparently Ewell did too. Ewell went as far north as Carlisle on the 1st. Like I told you earlier, there's indication that, there are some indications that, that the whole southern idea was to, Lee's plan was either, we're not entirely sure, Lee's, 
Because one of the things, after the war, a lot of these Southern commanders would whitewash history to make themselves look better. Even Lee was guilty of this sometimes. Yeah. So we're not sure entirely if his plan was to gather at South Mountain, which would be an extraordinary high ground if the Union attacked there, and then, once gathered, strike off for Philadelphia, Harrisburg, Pittsburgh, or wherever you want to go, maybe Baltimore. It would be ridiculous to come this far south and just hit Washington. But wherever the goal was, it seems like they were either going to gather at South Mountain as a staging point, or they were going to gather at South Mountain and dare the Union Army to come destroy them there. Because I'll be honest with you, if, if Lee had uh, got on South Mountain and had set up some impressive defensive works there, it would have been Fredericksburg all over again. It, we, would have, we would have had to lose three or four times the, the men as the South did, and, and then even then we may or may not have dislodged them from South Mountain. So it's unclear. But yeah, uh, early on, I mean, you see Early and Ewell and, and Stewart are, are kind of... The, they're kind of far flung from from Gettysburg as the as the battle begins. Now, Jubal early at one point, see, he starts at Gettysburg. He starts at Gettysburg and makes it to Wrightville before he has to come back around. So early actually held Gettysburg around June 26th, and when they got, went into Gettysburg, of course, there wasn't any Union forces there. They burned a covered bridge. They set fire a couple of railroad cars. They didn't really steal much because they were they had other goals in mind. They were heading to York, and then apparently also they make it as far as Wrightsville before they turn around. So at one point, about a, a half a week to a week before, they actually hold uh, the town of Gettysburg. Now, like I said earlier, Lee had allowed Stewart to go out and do his thing. The, the plan was to outflank the Union Army, the whole Union Army to the east. So that's one of the reasons why Stuart's kind of far-flung here. It's, it's unclear if he even he knows where the Union Army is at, at, at any given point. He's probably out looking for it. It's almost certain a, mis- a mistake for him to have gotten so far away. He probably should have, having not found the Union Army, he probably should have just come back with that information and then got further orders. But Jeb Stuart was a little bit of a independent-minded person, so he, he kind of gets strung out. Lincoln and Halleck, Henry Halleck, he was uh, Grant's superior in the West, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. and then when L- Lincoln loses his patience with McClellan after the uh, Peninsula campaign, but he, he can't yet fire M- uh, McClellan, he has nobody to take his place, he, he does decide to give Halleck the overall command of the Union, Union effort. So McClellan has a boss. And then when he finally is in a place politically where he can fire McClellan, then Halleck functions as the boss of Pope, then Burnside, then Hooker, then Meade. And then Halleck gets demoted, not necessarily for his uh, incompetence or anything, just at a certain point, Lincoln decides what he really needs is Grant. And so when Grant is brought east, Grant is put in charge of the entire Union war effort. Uh, So he he basically replaces Halleck at that point. So Lincoln and Halleck were not satisfied with Hooker. Hooker had not done particularly well at Chancellorsville. He he was smart in retrospect to to march his army between Washington, D.C. and Lee, although it's unclear if Lee ever really was going to make an attack on Washington. There's 
there's about a hundred reasons why. I mean, Washington's right there. The South could have had a chance to attack Washington at various points during the Civil War, but they never did. And there's a variety of reasons for that. There's more tempting targets elsewhere, I guess, is, is a, a best way of putting it. Because even I, I've been to Washington, D.C. It's flatland around it. I'm not sure why they never attacked, but they never could. Uh, First Manassas really was the only time the South ever really had a chance to, to take Washington, D.C. And they were just too green and, and had, did not yet have good leadership to know how to take advantage of of their uh, their victory at Bull Run or at First Manassas. So there was a dispute regarding the forces at Harper's Ferry. See, yeah, Harper's Ferry is up here. Right here on the border of Virginia and West Virginia. On the Potomac River. And there was a, a dispute about exactly who, uh, where... Uh, if those defensive forces were going to stay, how many there were at, and Hooker, in in a in a in a rage, offered his resignation, and Lincoln and Halleck accepted it immediately, and cashiered him. Now his his army career will continue. He'll continue out west underneath Grant, and then underneath Sherman. So it's it's a significant demotion for him. He is he is in charge of all the east, and then all of a sudden he's under generals he ought to outrank um, in the West. He actually does a pretty good job in the West. Most most people, uh, especially at um, Chattanooga, I think it was Chattanooga, we'll, we'll talk about it when we talk about the last battles of the war, but he actually does a, a fairly decent job. But he, he gets fired, well he re- offers his resignation they accept it immediately, and this is only three days before Gettysburg. So Meade is put in charge of the Army of the Potomac just three days before the biggest battle of the war. All right, on July 1st, first of all, here's at the Gettysburg Memorial, There, here's a, a memorial indicating the exact place where the first... The uh, first what? The first shot. Oh, I know, okay. that's what I thought, too. That's what I thought, too. I was like, oh... I thought maybe it was shirt. No, but it's it's first shot. Yeah, it's supposed I to can say, see that old. You know. It's supposed to say the first shot. But here's a battle for the uh, battle map for the first day. Now remember, Lee, he has got a standing. His goal is South Mountain, not Gettysburg. So his plans are about to get upended a bit. General Brigadier General John J. Johnston Pettigrew. I actually don't know what J stands for, but General P- Pettigrew. He goes into Gettysburg to get some supplies, especially shoes. His men were lacking shoes, and their shoes were getting worn out from marching. And apparently Gettysburg, in one of these one of these fine buildings, was a shoe store. I don't know that for a fact. but uh, In fact, I don't think Pettigrew knew that for a fact, but they heard there was a shoe store, so they headed down. Like I said, Lee had ordered for the forces to gather on the high ground of South Mountain, eight miles west. Now, when Pettigrew goes into Gettysburg, he happens to glance John Buford's cavalry cavalry south of town. So Pettigrew goes and reports to his commanders, uh, General Henry Heath, pronounced Heath, although I've always thought it was Heth, because it's spelled that way, H-E-T-H. But I watched a video about Gettysburg this week, and they, they kept pronouncing it Heath. His commander, his his immediate commander is Henry Heath, and then the division commander is A.P. Hill. So he 
reports to his commanders, and he says that that he had seen what he believes was Union Cavalry. But Hill does not believe that it's Union Cavalry. At best, he thinks it might be some local Pennsylvania militia. But he, he needs to figure out, because even if it's Pennsylvania militia, they can alert, they still think Hooker, they don't know media, they could alert Hooker about where they're at. So Hill decides he's going to do a reconnaissance in force. So they're going to go in with guns blazing, but not for the point of trying to start a battle, just to figure out what's going on. And then, you know, if they have to wipe out the local militia, so be it. But if they can capture them and and and, and uh, keep them from reporting positions, all the better. So Buford, apparently, he had also seen Confederates in towns because he had anticipated an attack, and he took his cavalry cavalry and dismounted them in order to man defenses on the high ground of Hare Ridge, right here, and uh, McPherson Ridge, and Seminary Ridge. So he had his troops kind of, if you imagine like this, like like in the West. Mm -hmm. Now, Buford... Cavalry commanders don't don't cover as many, don't command as many people as as an infantry anyway, and they're dismounted, so they've got to be spread pretty thin here. So uh, Buford decides to uh, set up some high ground positions. He knew he couldn't hold it, but what he had hoped was to hold the ground long enough for the Union infantry to come in and occupy even better positions, because he knew that these were poor high ground positions, but he did know that there was much better high ground positions on Cemetery Ridge, Little Round Top, Round Top, or sometimes called Big Round Top, and Culp's Hill. So he knew if he could hold the Confederates west and north of town, that could give the Union chance to occupy much better positions south of town. And if that, in fact, was his goal, he succeeded with amazing success in that regard. Major General... John F. Reynolds, who we did not cover when we talked about generals. That's just just to show you how many interesting generals there were in the war. Because some historians, like Shelby Foote, rank John F. Reynolds as perhaps one of the best commanders on either side of the war. And had he survived Gettysburg, he might have had even more opportunities to prove his valor after, after the battle. John F. Reynolds shows up. He... Uh, starts to organize the battlefield. He gets the infantry in position. He starts setting up artillery positions, and he is relieving Buford. He goes and meets Buford on those those high grounds positions that I mentioned earlier, Hare Ridge, McPherson Ridge, and uh, Seminary Ridge. He meets with Buford, and upon his return, he commands his men to flush the Confederates out of a wooded area. So my best guess might be the wooded area between McPherson Ridge and Seminary Ridge would be my best guess. He, he orders his men to flush out the Confederates, and as he's giving that command, a bullet strikes him in the back of the neck, and he dies almost immediately. He is replaced by Abner Doubleday, who we did mention uh, in our interesting uh, because he, for some reasons, uh, some researchers decided he invented baseball, uh, which would have amused him. He did not invent baseball. But also, he after the war, he gets involved with theosophy, a, a weird cult. 
in the battle that, that ensues, the Iron Brigade, the famous Iron Brigade, uh, is involved. They uh, are a group of uh, Wisconsinites, Indianers, Michiganders, I don't know what you say. They're from Wisconsin, India, Indiana, and Michigan, which at the time was considered all of it, even Indiana was considered western, western states. And the uh, Iron Brigade faces off against the North Carolina 26th. The North Carolina 26th had 839 men going into this initial battle. If I'm not mistaken, I believe the North Carolina 26th was part of the AP Hill assaults you see there along Seminary Ridge. 839 men were in that brigade. 152 men walked out of Gettysburg. Oh my that gives them the highest casualty rate of any regiment in any one battle in the whole war. So Hill drives the Union forces across Lutheran Seminary. Right here on the edge of town is a seminary that is even still there today. It combined with another Union semin- or another Lutheran seminary in Philadelphia. But that union that seminary still uses both campuses to, to train pastors. So Hill drives the Union forces across the seminary and through the streets of town. It's not a massive town, at least not at this point. It drives them through the streets, and then the Union finally is able to reform their lines on Cemetery Hill, right here, just south of town. What develops is, and let's see if I got a good picture of this, what develops is a fish hook. You can see the beginning of the fish hook beginning right there. Here's probably the best. From Round Top up to Cemetery Hill, Cemetery Hill, and then wrapping around Culp's Hill, developed a fish hook of Union lines. And so as, as the Union continues to, to uh, bring in more units into the battle, this is what the lines end up looking like. But Major General Daniel Sickles ruined it. As you can see, there's some uh, arrows pointing forward where Sickles moves forward. He decided on his own that they would be able to have better position to uh, set up their artillery down in the flatlands of the Peach Orchard, which is actually, I wrote this down, the Sherfy, Sherfy Farm Peach Orchard. S-H-E-R-F-Y. Family name, I'm guessing. So he, he descends from Seminary Ridge, a much better high ground, down to the Peach Orchard because he believed it was a better place to set up artillery. He does not understand how high ground works. What it, that did was it opened up a half mile Right here, if A.P. Hill had been more... Of course, if I were Hill, I would have assumed it was a some kind of trap. But if, knowing that it wasn't a trap, he could have cut Sickles off uh, from the rest of the Union Army here, and Longstreet could have destroyed them. That would have given the South, both Round Top and Little Round Top, the highest of the high grounds that the Union holds. Now, here's Sickles' decision was not... A complete, I mean, it was bad. It was a bad decision. But it wasn't a disaster because for one of the few times in the war, the Union has perfect interior lines. So let's get back to that fishhook picture. So if at any point here, so, so say the Confederates attack here, well, then Meade can just draw some soldiers from here. And we already know, because Sickles goes forward, that, that they were needed here. 
So he just drew some soldiers from Culp's Hill. And so for the, for the first time, not for the first time, but for one of the rare times in the war, the Union had absolute uh, advantage when it comes to interior lines. The South had, did not. They were, they were the ones that were strung out, and with fewer men. So George Sykes is brought from... Actually, he's not quite on Culp's Hill there, at least not according to this. He's, but he's, he's set up over by Rock Creek. Meade immediately brings Sykes in to, to cover that salient and to reform the lines. Sickles, to his credit, understands the mistake he makes and offers to retreat and, and set the line back up on the ridge like he's supposed to. But Meade is smart enough to know that the attack is going to happen literally any minute. And so instead they decide to set up right there. They're going to hold their ground right there in the peach orchard, and then the south part of that of that salient ends up becoming known as Devil's Den because of the terrific fighting that happens there. During the battle, Daniel Sickles actually loses his leg. It gets hit with a cannonball. And for some reason, that leg is on display at the National Museum of Health and Medicine. So his, his leg is, is, on, is in a museum. Richard Ewell could have, at this point, Ewell could have assaulted Culp's Hill because Meade was taking forces away from the east in order to support his western lines. Ewell could have taken Culp's Hill, but instead he misunderstands his orders and just does an artillery barrage of Slocum and the Union forces on Culp's Hill. The artillery was set up too far away and does hardly any damage to the, to the Union forces on Culp's Hill. And Ewell only gets to the point where he actually assaults Culp's Hill at 6 p.m., and at that point it's really too late to do anything. Meanwhile, Longstreet tried to outflank Sickles to the left to take a Round Top and a Little Round Top. Now we know that... Everything up to the point where the Union retreats to Cemetery Hill is first day. Everything I mentioned after that is second day. So we're, uh, all the Sickles mistake and Sykes uh, coming in, and then all this is July 2nd. Longstreet tries to outflank to, uh, 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 to the right, or to his right, around Sickles, uh, to take round top and a little round top and then hopefully to press up and, and start crushing the Union forces uh, in, in that area. Apparently, they take round top because in everything I've read about this battle, it says that the 20th Maine forms the extreme left of, of, the, uh, of the Union forces and they are definitely at little round top. They're right at the top. That's where 20th Maine is. So the 20th Maine thanks to Sickles' move, holds the, the... Basically, they give up Round Top. Uh, and and uh, Joshua Lawrence Chamberlain and the Mainers uh, hold, hold Little Round Top, which is now the, the, the absolute high ground for the Union. General Governor Warren... Governor apparently is his name. Now, he's not a governor of anything. Uh, he rode to the left flank and actually found it empty. At one point, he finds himself standing on a little round top more or less by himself. <laughs> and actually there's a there's a statue right at that spot. A round, little round top looking out over the over the crowd. Now there's a lot of <coughs> fewer 
trees on Little Round Top than there were at the time. In fact, the deforestation of Little Round Top begins in this battle because <laughs> a lot of these four trees get destroyed. But he, he, as he's standing on Little Round Top, he looks down. He's, I don't know. It might be more of a legend that he was by himself. It was probably certainly he had a staff with him. But uh, the legend, he stands by himself, and then he can see the bayonets of the uh, uh, through the trees. He can see the southern bayonets coming, and he knew that the attack was just moments away. And if the south loses, uh, the north uses, apparently they've already lost round top. They lose a little round top. That exposes their entire left flank to attack and counterattack and outflanking. And, of course, as you can see with the fish hook, if the south gets inside that fish hook, everybody's in danger. From the inside of that fish hook, every, every, every Union uh, soldier and every general is in danger. So what Warren does is he collects a ragtag group of, of, of units that are not necessarily part of the same brigade. So he gathers the 16th Michigan, the 44th New York, the 83rd Pennsylvania, and famously the 20th Maine, and sets them up on Little Round Top to complete... Maine is up at the top of Little Round Top, and then the other units connect to Sickles' forces, and then, of course, Sykes is already... Actually, these units look like they were part of Sykes. So Sykes is, is... His forces apparently have divided in half. Some of them are coming here, some of them are coming here, and, and they're closing the lines that Sickles opened, up, Sickles opened up. What ends up happening, is famously depicted in the movie Gettysburg, is that the 20th Maine repulses four or five charges up the hill by Alabama and, I want to say Texans? There was two different states. I know it was Alabama. Because Alabama were the ones, they were the unfortunate um, ones that received the bayonet at the end because they kept coming and they kept coming and they kept coming and then Chamberlain and his Mainers are running out of ammunition. And after the last charge up the hill, they actually, they're out. They are out of ammunition. And instead of retreating, Chamberlain decides, okay, what we're going to do is we're going to fix bayonets and we're going to do a charge. So from the top of the hill, they charge like this, like a sweeping move to, to kind of force the, the Southerners back towards this position. And the, the bayonet charge without any ammunition was almost a complete success. They don't actually lose a whole lot of people in the bayonet charge. Lots of Southerners get stabbed, and a lot of uh, Alabamans uh, become prisoners. To they don't know they're not charged; they just know they're crazy. <laughs> These Mainers running down a hill. This is one of the reasons why high ground is important in war. Because if you're charging up a hill, you're obviously going slower than if you're charging down a hill. And so. These men, who are fresher, even though they've been... A lot of Mainers died. I, I don't know if I'm using the word, word Mainer right, but a lot of guys from Maine die in this, in this battle, this uh, little round-top assault. So they've been hit hard, but they're, they haven't been running like the Southerners have. They haven't been charging. So they're fresh. They're going downhill. They've got bayonets affixed. They're, they're, they scare the heck out of the, out of the Alabama guys charging up that hill. Joshua Lawrence Chamberlain will win the Medal of Honor for his uh, uh, leadership and for his decision to do the unorthodox bayonet charge, which it was successfully basically won the day for the for the Union at Little Round Top. Meanwhile, Jeb Stewart arrives. He arrives too late to actually do any help on on the second day, and Lee gets upset at him 
Stewart offers his resignation and Lee refuses. And so what Stewart does, and now we're starting to get into the third day here. Stewart goes out and he decides he's going to try to find, pick a fight. And he does, uh, he gets a, in, in an in a indecisive cavalry battle with David Gregg, and part of Gregg's force is uh, Custer, uh, George, George Custer. So that's what Stewart ends up doing. So on the third day, early on the third day, and it's easier when you're talking about first day, second day, third day, because it's July 1st, 2nd, 3rd. So here's, here's our third day map. Overnight, the Union is able to reforge their lines around Little Round Top, and Sedgwick is able to move into position, and they take... Not only do they take a little round top, but they, they, they give themselves a little bit of a defensive barrier around it. Um, the only, at the beginning of the day, the only area where the Union doesn't really have absolute control of high ground is on Culp's Hill. So early on the 3rd, Meade begins an attack to retake portions of Culp's Hill they had lost the day before. Because remember, Meade had had to take men out of Culp's Hill to, uh, to, to fix the, the lines on, on the west. So they um, they begin a, an artillery barrage and and it's actually the Confederates that attack after the, the the barrage or maybe in the middle of the barrage. So the Confederates attack and the Union counters counterattacks and they win so well that they actually have a better position by noon than they had had two days before or a day before. So by noon on the third day, the Union has a perfect fishhook line basically connecting all of the high ground south of Gettysburg. So after these early attack on Culp's Hill that fails and Little Round Top the the afternoon before, it appeared to Lee that the United States, the Union's strongest positions were actually the flanks. So he did not want to follow Longstreet's advice to do another flanking maneuver. Longstreet always wanted to do flanks. Instead, Lee decides to go full Napoleon and decides, well, if the flanks are the strongest, what about right in the middle? That's what we'll do. We'll go right down the middle. So every single brigade in the Southern uh, or the Army of Northern Virginia had been used in the battle except one, and that was George Pickett's. Pickett's was the freshest of all of the Southern soldiers, so they're the ones that are picked to do the, the charge. One of the brigadier generals in Pickett's division, or the brigade division, I'm not sure if I'm using these terms correctly. One of the brigadier generals is Louis Armistead. I've mentioned him before, but I never knew his name off the top of my head. He was actually friends. One of his best friends was William, uh, Winfield Scott Hancock, who he's about to attack. Armistead leads his men from the front and Actually, this picture right here, I'm not sure if this is supposed to be Armistead himself, but this is the the point where at the time there was a stone wall right here, and this was as far as the South got on Pickett's Charge. And Armistead famously died leaning against the stone wall, so he makes it all the way across the whole field and, and dies, just, uh, dies fighting hand-to-hand against his best friend's men. A lot of these guys were good friends from back in the... West Point days and, and whatnot, and, and the Mexican-American War. I think Armistead and, and Hancock were too young to have done much in, in the Mexican-American War if they were even old enough to be in it. Armistead's, not just Armistead, but the Pickett's charge uh, goes right towards the middle, and they lose 
an extraordinary amount of men. Over half of Pickett's men die in this one futile, idiotic charge. <laughs> Pickett's charge is the first rebuttal you would give if, if somebody was insisting Lee is the greatest American strip, uh, military strategist of all time. You'd say, Pickett's charge. That This would be the point where you would say, Lee was a little bit behind his time. If this had been Mexico, or if this had been the War of 1812, this would have been a smart move. But in the days of repeating carbine handguns and rifled muskets, this was a very dumb move. And the Southerners were just picked, were just picked off as they, as they made the charge. Casualties were extremely high. On day four, after Pickett's charge and after a, a, a commanding victory by, uh, by Meade, Lee sets up his position on Seminary Ridge, which, besides the round top, Seminary Ridge is the best uh, high ground in the area. So he sets up on July 4th on Seminary Ridge and just waits for Meade to attack. Uh, Meade doesn't take the bait. For it, Meade will lose his job because Lincoln wanted a general who would go after Lee until Lee was defeated. But Meade may or may not have made a good choice here because the Union Army soldiers are, are beat up too. And so an attack on Seminary Ridge might have been Pickett's charge in reverse. What is the legacy of this battle? Well, the in hindsight, this is the, like it says here at the marker, the high water mark is the nickname for it. The furthest point that the Union is a, or the, the Confederacy is able to get, and from this point on, it's retreat, 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 until the end of the war. At no point beyond this does the, the South will win battles. They'll, they'll, more appropriately, from now on, there will be battles that the Union doesn't win. As far as making major offensives, making uh, being put in a position where the South could conceivably win the war, that's done. But they didn't know it at the time. There was still two years of war left, almost two years of war left. Shortly after Gettysburg, there is the biggest draft riot in New York City, <laughs> where some of Gettysburg's soldiers actually have to be taken to New York City to put down the draft riot. Seventy-two American soldiers received the Medal of Honor. One of them was Joshua Lawrence Chamberlain for his uh, leadership at Little Round Top. The last of them all was a man by the name of Alonzo Cushing, who died defending a Union artillery post against Pickett's charge. The reason I bring him up is he received the Medal of Honor in 2014. So that's, as of right now, that's the last Medal of Honor awarded for Gettysburg's service. So many men died in Gettysburg. Antietam was a much bloodier day, because Antietam really was one day. This was three. Antietam was a bloodier day, but this was a bloodier battle. More men died in this battle than any other battle in American history, including D-Day, if I'm not mistaken, and, and the, and the uh, initial uh, battles that happened around Normandy. I mean, if, obviously, if you count all of everything from D-Day until Germany Falls was one big battle, I don't. But if you did, that would obviously be, be bigger. But Gettysburg is, is a massive battle with lots of, of, of dead bodies, and so... For the first time, the decision was made to actually create a battlefield cemetery. We know this because, I mean, we, we know it because there's a battlefield cemetery there, but we most of us have heard of this because of the Gettysburg Address. A few months later, as the cemetery is ready for uh, being dedicated, 
The dedication ceremony is on November 19th. Lincoln is invited to speak. This is one of only two known pictures of Lincoln in Gettysburg. This is him right here. This is his bodyguard actually wearing a hat that looks like his. The one of only two known pictures. At the uh, dedication ceremony, Edward Everett, who I'm actually not sure who Everett was, governor or senator or something, he gives a two-hour speech. And by all accounts, it was a good speech. Then Lincoln gives a, stands up and gives a two-minute speech, and it's the most famous speech ever given. Yeah. If I had the time, I haven't been paying attention to my clock. I've been too excited talking about Gettysburg. I would read this in its entirety, but uh, I need to cover Vicksburg, and now I have no time to do it. So That's Gettysburg. Now let's talk really quickly about Vicksburg, because around the same time, you have Battle of Vicksburg. In many ways, a much more important battle. Because once Vicksburg falls, that cuts the Confederacy in half. It also is Grant's crowning achievement. And a few months later, Lincoln will realize that and escalate him all the way to the head of of the U.S. Army's uh, effort. As you can see, we're going to take a look at this painting earlier, but as you can see, I couldn't find a picture of it. Not even in modern day, I couldn't find a picture of it. But see this high ground setting, looking over the river? That's why Vicksburg was so dang... Uh, formidable. They had cannons up there, and anything coming up either direction from the from the from the uh, by Vicksburg could almost be destroyed. You would have to be really brave, and even if you were a skilled navyman, the chances of you getting destroyed by cannonade as you crossed Vicksburg were very high. Here is a picture of some of the battles leading up to the siege of Vicksburg. As you can see, one of the things I hadn't realized is just how swampy and Look how many rivers there are around yeah. here. And I had, I had heard of the Delta. I mean, the, 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 this is famously one of the poorest regions in all of, of, of America. It's also one of the flattest regions in all of America. I knew all that. But the Delta is just a crisscrossing of rivers. It's even hard to tell where the Mississippi is here. I mean, not entirely because it's the biggest of the rivers. But here's the Yazoo. And I was always under the impression Yazoo was a tiny river. It's not. It's a pretty big river. And the, the, the area between the Yazoo and the Mississippi uh, is called the Delta. So Port Hudson, that's the name of the other one. So let's go back to this map. Port Hudson, Baton Rouge, and I believe Baton Rouge is about here. So Port Hudson, Baton Rouge is right here on this side of the river. So Port Hudson is right about here. So everything between here and here is controlled by Confederates. But at this point in the war, everything north of Pittsburgh and everything south of Baton Rouge is, is now under Union control. Pemberton, John Pemberton, is the uh, general uh, who loses Vicksburg. He was a Pennsylvanian, but he had married a Virginian, and so he decided to side with the Confederates. And he was charged with holding Vic- Vicksburg. Unfortunately, and, and President Davis, well, first of all, President Davis, Vicksburg is basically his hometown. I think his people are from, his family was from further north. They were from Mississippi. I think uh, Davis Landing somewhere up in this region. But they're, they're, Davis had a massive plantation along the Mississippi River. But Vicksburg would have been like a major port for it. And, and if he's doing any shipping off his plantation, like taking cotton down, he's going to go past Vicksburg. So he knows how important it is. And like I said earlier, with Port Hudson and Vicksburg still in, in Confederate hands, all this area is still open. So if you have cattle on a train tra- a train with cattle cars and you're trying to send them east to feed Confederate soldiers, you can go through this area because it's still controlled by the South. 
you lose Pittsburgh and you lose Hudson, you don't have, you can't, you can't cross. You would have to do smuggling. You would have to smuggle across Union lines. So Davis insisted on holding Vicksburg, but Joe Johnston, who gets a bad rap for his role in Vicksburg, as far as I can tell, he did his best. Vicksburg's, or Joe Johnston seems to be the only person to know that the situation for the South at Vicksburg was untenable. He actually encourages Pemberton early on to abandon Vicksburg and take his men further east to fight another day. But Pemberton does not want to do it because he's a Pennsylvanian, and he knows that if he gives up Vicksburg, he'll be blamed for that. And in fact, he gets blamed for it anyway, yeah. for losing it. Uh, as as the, the, the Yankee who came down and, and just handed Vicksburg on a golden platter. The problem is that's not how Vicksburg turned out. It wasn't a golden platter. Look at all those yellow markers. That's all the different times Grant tried to take Vicksburg. <laughs> Grant was nothing if not persistent. This is this is not all of the opportunity. But the first time is in late 1862, Grant decides to take a swipe at Vicksburg by going overland. It's called the Overland Campaign. So all of Grant, he won two massive battles earlier, and, 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 uh, and Shiloh, he wins Shiloh, and he's already got... Uh, up, up in Tennessee, he's already he's already been master of the field up here. But he knows he's got to take Vicksburg in order so that the Union can have the Mississippi. Because once the Union has the Mississippi, all of a sudden the entire trade route from Chicago down to New Orleans is now open again. The Union can have all that access. And not only that, but with the Yazoo and these other rivers, now you're 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 giving your Navy more opportunities to get further into Confederate territory. So. First, he does an overland campaign where he tries to march south. It's a miserable failure. It's too late in the year, uh, too rainy. It's it's just it's it's it, it gets uh, he he loses in the field. He has to go back. One of the things he had hoped what he had hoped what the overland campaign. The whole point was he was wanting to, to force the Vicksburg soldiers out of Vicksburg. My seam right here, Vicksburg. He was hoping to force the soldiers out by coming and meet them in the field, and then Sherman would come down with the Navy boats, and then Sherman would lead an attack on, uh, on the town, which would hopefully be mostly undefended at that point. That plan uh, fails miserably. Then there's McClernand's gambit. General McClernand was a, an old frenemy, to use a term from people younger than myself, somebody who you, you, um, you, you kind of like, but you're enemies. McClernand was a Southern Democrat from Southern Illinois, so he knew Lincoln pretty well. And they kind of liked each other, but they disagreed on everything politically. But uh, except for the value of the Union, McClernand was, uh, he wasn't a great general, but he was, um, he was a Unionist. I'll give him that much. McClernand had been fighting f uh, in the East, but he wanted his own independent command. He, um, and so he lobbied Stanton, who was the Secretary of War, to get an independent command. And Stanton thought, well, we've been watching Grant take two or three swipes at, at Vicksburg. Well, let's see if you can do any better. So go to Illinois, gather a corps, go down, take Vicksburg, we'll give you your command. And so he does so. But in the meantime, Grant decided he was going to... He didn't whine and threaten to resign or anything. He simply asked Lincoln and Halleck and Stanton, who's in charge? Is it me or is it McClernand? They said, no, you're in charge. So uh, McClernand doesn't really get his uh, the, the independent command that he wants to. And then his only 
real time when he doesn't ha- does have his independent command, he he absconds with Sherman and Sherman's tr- troops, and they go up the Arkansas River for some reason. <laughs> they go the other direction, and to their credit, they take uh, what's the name of it? They take uh, Arkansas Post. Apparently, it's it's a, a military outpost on on the Arkansas River. They take it, but it doesn't do anything to get closer to taking Pittsburgh. The following uh, after this, the, probably the most famous attempt uh, after this was something called Grant's Canal. Okay, so so combine this picture. This is what Vicksburg looks like. The river comes. You imagine the river's coming here, and then it kind of does a, a, a pincer move up here. Okay, you can see right here. There's a little strip of land in Arkansas. What Grant did, and he wasn't the first one. Somebody else, and I'm not sure who it was, but somebody else decided they were going to build a canal here to avoid the guns of Vicksburg. And they started, and it was a miserable failure. Grant says, why don't we give that another try? And there's still today, there's Grant's Canal there. It's mostly mud. They, they start building a canal there. It doesn't really work. This series of, of river that, the, the, uh, these, this series of rivers over here that come to the west side of the Mississippi, inexplicably, one of them connects to a lake that's only a few hundred yards from the Mississippi River. Uh, up north of, uh, of Vicksburg, but, but uh, near the, the, the Delta. So they wanted to build a, a canal connecting the uh, river to that lake. And then the Navy could take these rivers further south here. And they were they successfully were able to, to make a canal out of it, but they were never able to... The, the, these, this, this series of rivers wasn't big enough to, to take the Navy's gunboats. They Mostly they were able to transport supplies and, and some men. Now, all in all... Grant has about five or six major attempts at Vicksburg. He finally is successful. They, I, mean, I think actually it was, it was this, this plan here. They, he's able to get his soldiers south of Vicksburg, 20 south, but still in Mississippi, so they're not in Port Hudson territory yet. There's Port Hudson right there. He lands his troops here, and... Pemberton believes that he's going to go straight north up at Pittsburgh, but Grant's smart enough that he he he, he uh, uses the big is it Big Bear Lake or Big Bear River? I I didn't write it down in my notes and I can't read it here, but he he keeps this river between him and Pittsburgh the whole time, and he actually goes around Pittsburgh and attacks Jackson, the capital of Mississippi, and this actually does what he tried to do the very first time. It forces Pemberton to bring out his troops from Vicksburg to try to rescue Jackson. Likewise, General Johnston and his men try to come and rescue Jackson, but Johnson finds that he's uh, unable to do so. Well, Pemberton and his men uh, attack uh, uh, Grant out in the field, and Grant wins. Pemberton and his men start to retreat, but Grant and his men are able to overtake one of the three divisions or brigades. I'm not sure if I'm getting my terms right. One of the three groups they're able to overtake and separate them from the crowd, and then that uh, that division has a, deci- a decision to make. They could either surrender, die fighting Grant, try, or try to you know die trying to get through Grant to get to Vicksburg, or they could just turn around and go back to Jackson, which is what they do. But they have no way of letting Pemberton know what they're doing. So Pemberton arrives back with only two-thirds of his men, and they keep most of their defenses open because they still expect an entire another division to come. So Grant, having conquered the south in the field here and, and having successfully crossed his men across into Mississippi, then he's able to turn completely around 
And now he's attacking Vicksburg from the east. And they establish a, uh, a siege. See, here's McClernand I had mentioned earlier. His men, and they're able to, to uh, uh, create, uh, set up a siege which has a tight, a tight uh, control around Vicksburg, but not so tight as to allow the Confederates to consolidate their forces. They, the, the Confederates are, are spread out all along here trying to protect Vicksburg. And then Grant, who's got, I mean, you got General Forrest out here is going to destroy supply lines as often as you can. But at this point, now the, the Union has control of the Mississippi River, so they can be bringing stuff down from Chicago and St. Louis all the way down to, you know, really all the way down to this bend, if not a few miles north, and then they, they could put it on wagon trails and bring it around. Or likewise, they can bring stuff up from New Orleans. So Grant doesn't have to do anything except just stay there. Meanwhile, Pemberton and his troops start to starve. At one point, Pemberton receives a letter that, that is saw, signed several soldiers. Literally, that's what it said. Not not several soldiers signed it, but they had actually signed by several soldiers. That says, uh, uh, "Feed us or surrender." Basically, they they start to starve, and uh, it was one of those things where they never got to cannibalism. But uh, it was said that when when the Union finally took Vicksburg, there wasn't a pet left in town. There wasn't a rat. There was nothing. I mean, everything that could be eaten had been eaten, and. That the so it all comes down on July third. Pemberton meets with Grant and demands terms for surrender. Once again, Grant does his famous uh, "no terms but unconditional surrender" thing and it kicks off Pemberton and he goes back. Grant goes back to his camp and thinks uh, about it again and realizes a few things. First of all, this unconditional surrender thing might sound good in the press, but it's just ticking ticking my my opponents off. And second of all. I don't have the, I don't have the ability to put all of these guys in the prison camp. So he offers a term, parole, that uh, all your men will line up. You will distribute all of your arms. We'll even feed your guys. We'll, they'll all get a food. They will turn over all of their weapons, and then they will go home. And by parole, you're not supposed to fight in the war again. Most Southerners who were paroled did end up fighting in the war again if uh, if if they unless they could actively avoid it. Because the South, as honorable as it is to, to, to uh, you know, say you're paroled at Vicksburg and then the, your, your state recruiter comes and says, we need more men to fight in Lee's army, and you say, sorry, I was paroled. They're just not, as, as honorable as the South is, they're not going to accept that as an excuse. If you're a, 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 a male with muscles that still work and all four limbs, they're going to send you to, to battle. So by Grant offering the terms of parole, Pemberton finally agrees. And so this happens on July 4th, the uh, same day that Lee finally, because uh, like I said, Lee loses the battle. Uh, Pickett's charges on the 3rd, but Lee's retreat from Gettysburg is on the 4th. So July 4th, 1863, ends up being the second most important July 4th in the history of the United States of America because of these two battles. From this point on, it wasn't obvious to the people who lived at the time because there's still quite a bit of war left. But from this point on, the South will start losing. Never again. From This is the high... July 4th is the... July 3rd, actually, is the high water mark of the Confederacy. From this point on, it just gets worse.
We hope you have enjoyed this production of The Blue Collar Scholar. I am your host, Will Wrights. Any factual errors made in the preparation or recording of this podcast are unintentional, and your feedback is welcome. You may contact me at thewillwrights at gmail.com. That's T-H-E-W-I-L-L-R-E-I-T-Z at gmail.com. The Blue Collar Scholar is written, recorded, and edited by Will Wrights. Music by Coma Media from Pixabay. The purpose of this podcast is to educate. Use and distribution of this podcast can only be done by the express written permission of the content creator of this podcast. We hope you have enjoyed this episode, and we hope you will be back to download more. And thank you.